0: Good morning everybody, I want to invite you to turn over to Exodus chapter 20, where we're going to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. I want to add my welcome to Matt's welcome, especially to those of you who are here for the first time. Thank you for coming, we're glad to have you, and one thing you should know is that each week when we gather at the heart of our time together, we spend a concentrated amount of time and attention trying to understand God's Word. We take pieces of it each week and try to understand it in its own context, and especially try to understand how does it apply to us now, today. And uh, and, and, and right now, we've been in the series in Exodus, one of the earliest books in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and specifically now in a section of Exodus that's known as the Ten Commandments. Probably even if Christianity is unfamiliar to you, you've heard of those. They're really famous for good reason. It's unbelievable to me how relevant, how timeless the principles in the Ten Commandments actually are. And we've been seeing that every week but we've especially been seeing it, I think, in the last few weeks. So over the last uh, few weeks, we have we have grabbed hold of what you might call some live wires. And we grabbed another one this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about family, specifically relationships with parents. Very ongoing concern for those of you who are parents, but often a source of great pain and, and, and in, in some cases, trauma for those of you who've had difficult relationships with your parents. We went there together two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about life the command not to murder and built into it to promote life wherever life is vulnerable. A set of issues that obviously are supercharged politically in our environment. And this week, we get to talk about sex. So, onward and upward. Uh, another live wire for us, because today, I mean, sexual ethics, like life issues, are hotly contested in public square. But beyond that, I mean, I mean to, me, to me personally, that, that, pale, that, that aspect of what makes this sermon a live wire to grab a hold of pales in comparison to the fact that, that here, closer to home, sexual sin, including adultery, and all the steps that lead up to it is not theoretical for us. I mean, for us in this room, it is deeply personal. It's a subject that's full of shame for many of you and full of pain for others of you. And we want to talk about this issue, taking those kind of complicating factors into account. We want to, we want to be careful this morning in how we talk about the command that's in front of us. And because we trust that every command from God is good for us, we want to talk specifically this morning about what makes this command good and how we can embrace it. This command, the command, do not commit adultery, is really straightforward. I think among the commands here in the Ten Commandments, one of the easiest to understand the meaning of. It's, it's really, there, there's nothing... Like, behind that word that you wouldn't know unless you studied Hebrew or anything like that. It, it's basically what, you think, what you're thinking. It's a command that prohibits sex with anyone besides your spouse. Um, though the main, the main situation in view here certainly is uh, the married person who has sex with someone besides their husband or their wife. The, the broader teaching of the Bible about sex and marriage makes it clear that there's a principle here that's for everybody, whether you're married or not. Uh, sex belongs in a marriage between a husband and a wife. That's the teaching of the Bible from here all the way to the end. Any other sex besides that is different from what God designed, and it's beyond what God allowed. The difficulty, like I said a minute ago, isn't really understanding what this command forbids. That's real straightforward. But before we talk about how to embrace this command, that's really straightforward how to do the work in our own lives of trusting God's power to enable us to obey what he's told us. I think one of the things we need to do is spend some time understanding how radically unusual this view of sex is in its own context and in ours. What I want to do this morning is put this command into context first and then talk about putting this command into practice. The command not to commit adultery. I want us to see it first in its context, and ours, and then talk about how we can put it into practice. Today we're going to talk mostly about the practice side. We're going to spend a lot of time, even more time than we normally would, getting very specific about practical ways we can embrace the command God has put in front of us in this text. But before we do that, so that we understand the weight of it and its, and its necessary impact, I want to make sure you understand where it fits both in the context of culture and in the context of the scripture. So that's where we're going to begin this morning. I want to begin by asking you, even before I get there, to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read this brief verse, which is God's word to us this morning, and then we'll do our best with God helping us, trusting his spirit, to understand it and apply it. This is God's word from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You may be seated i mean it's a second ago I, I think to understand the significance of this command we need to understand the cultural context around us and then we can talk about the context of the bible i want to put the command in context first sometimes looking at an old passage maybe even especially an old testament passage in its cultural context unlocks things about it that you couldn't see before things that make it make more sense because it fit in its own time and place in a unique way that that separates it from our context. This is not one of those times. Some other times, cultural context helps reveal something about the text that, 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 that actually comes from how different the text and its view, what it's calling for, was from its own time. This is one of those cases. It's not that this text fits so well in its foreign, ancient context. It's that it, it helps us to understand that this text didn't fit the view of sex of, the, the, of those around the, the ancient Israelites or those who lived around the first Christians in the New Testament when this command gets affirmed again any more than this command and its view of sex fits our own cultural context. Uh, this week I've been reading a book that was recommended to me recently called um called pagans and christians in the city really interesting book by a actually a law professor out of the university of san diego where he's writing about the parallels between the roman context in which the new testament was written in which christianity came to be and took shape and our own context now and how similarly christianity stood out then to the way that it stands out here now really interesting book lots of interesting connections but one of the most important themes that this author describes is the christian view of sex which is of course rooted in the old testament view of sex how different it was from its cultural context then in some ways that mirror how different it is from our context now i want to give you a couple examples to put this command in in its context to understand how jarringly different its view of sex is from from the the, the view of those around those who first had this command and perhaps from your own. You need to understand a couple of things. Sex is a bigger deal than you may think and sex is not a big as big a deal as you may think. Sex is a bigger deal than you may think and it's not as big a deal as you may think. I want to make sure you can understand both sides of what I've just said. Both of these help help us understand, I think, the significance and the impact of this command. So behind the restriction that... That's given to us in the law here, this restriction against adultery, I think the obvious implication of it is that for in god's view, sex is powerful and precious and must be handled with care. It's powerful and precious and needs to be protected though though of course there have always been taboos related to sex in every culture. Uh, the ancient world in which this command first appeared, and very similar to the ancient world in which Christianity first appeared, uh, there was an assumed free and open sexuality, especially for men. The idea that you would limit sex to marriage, especially, again, for men, was a ridiculous idea at the time. This is something that that the Smith book I mentioned earlier explains in great detail it, it was viewed sex at the time was just viewed as one of the body's natural desires, one of its many appetites. Not indulging the appetites of the body didn't make any more sense than not eating or drinking or sleeping. I mean, what we're talking about here is something that's harmless, neutral, and casual. That would have been the view. I think that posture towards sex is just as popular today as it was in the ancient world. I see it in places you probably do too. It's common to hear about the hookup culture that phrase, or to see just how casual sex is reinforced in sitcoms. I think sitcoms maybe are the best example of that view of sex today. Because sex is viewed as so basic, so inherently harmless, the idea of restricting sex to marriage seems ridiculous. And often, at least in my experience, often the notion that someone would want to restrict sex to marriage is seen as, as rooted in a kind of negative view of sex itself. The belief that that for Christians, sex is something dirty and defiling. Maybe even beyond that, a negative view of the body as something we want to escape, to get out of and avoid. I think that's a common way to misunderstand Christian teaching. What we see in this text is, is coming from a very different place. Not that sex is something low, something primitive, something to be avoided. But that sex is something high, something precious. And powerful. That's where these boundaries come from. That's what makes them necessary. And that's why there's a command in the Ten Commandments about sex. That's why Jesus teaches about sexual sins, not just with the body, but with the mind. And that's why sexual immorality makes it onto so many lists of warnings in the New Testament about what brings judgment. And list after list, you'll see this one coming up. Because in the, from the perspective of the Bible, in contrast, to the perspective of those living around the, the people of God who first received these commands, sex is something serious, a much bigger deal than you might think. On the other hand, built into this command, as an implication of it, that we can't escape, is the Bible's view that sex is not as big a deal as you may think. Now let me, let me tell you what I mean by this one. I think this is really important, and maybe more out of step even with its own culture and with ours than the first thing I mention. Built into this command by by, by saying, you shall not commit adultery. God is telling us that sexual faithfulness is more important than sexual fulfillment. Sexual faithfulness. Let me say that again. This This is what I want you to end with here in this point. Behind this command, built into it, is God's word to us that sexual faithfulness is more important than sexual fulfillment. I think what makes this command necessary, the reason it's in here, is that sometimes in a marriage a husband or a wife might come to believe that their happiness depends on sex outside their marriage. That's why it has to be condemned. Because sometimes someone comes to believe that their happiness will depend on sex outside their marriage. Sometimes that might be because there is no sex happening in the marriage. Maybe it's physically impossible. Maybe it's relationally or emotionally impossible. Maybe it's just there are desires that aren't being fulfilled there. But wherever the source, there's an assumption that my fulfillment, my happiness will depend on sex outside of my marriage. This command is telling us that's just not true. I think this is a crucial point to mention that, that what, the, what we see built into this command for married sexuality also has a huge implication for you as a single person. If it's not necessary to be fulfilled as a married person, it isn't necessary for you to be fulfilled as a single person. You don't need sex. That's what this command is telling us. And this implication that choosing to say no to sex could be commendable, could be part of a life of joy and fulfillment. I I mentioned this before. That was even more countercultural than the notion that sex was too important to take lightly. Back to that Smith book, Pagans and Christians in the City. He says the pagan view, this is a quote from his book, is that sexual activity was a necessity. Quoting another scholar in, in the same section, that scholar says that man in the pagan view mankind might find an erotic fulfillment nothing short of salvation sex was basic to a healthy lifestyle and even more in their own time it's not something anyone should be denied that sounds familiar to me and i think there's no coincidence that sexual pleasure has been one of the most common idols in human history from the explicit idolatry of the pagan religion to the slightly more subtle idolatry of our time measured in dollars and time and attention. If you look at any survey of pagan religion, you're going to find gods in the pantheon of gods that are directly connected to to sex and what comes from it. And at the very beginning of our Ten Commandments, the first one of all that's foundational to all the others is you will have no other gods before me. One of the things we said early in the series is that you can't break the other Ten Commandments without breaking the first commandment first. God says no gods before me, and when he says that, he means sexual fulfillment too. And built into that, he means that faithfulness matters more, which is to say that God himself Matters more than sexual fulfillment. And every act of adultery starts with a belief that that's just not true. This command, this command not to commit adultery, in its context, it implies that sex is precious, more precious than Israel's neighbors believed, but not essential, not as essential as Israel's neighbors believed. It says you can't enjoy it outside God-given boundaries, but you can do without enjoying it altogether. That's the the balance that's built in to this command not to commit adultery. Now, I've been trying to put this command into its cultural context mostly uh, to show what a powerful contrast it was and is. I want to move on from that, but before we move into how to embrace this command for ourselves, there's one other piece of context that I want to make sure you can notice. Because this is the one that I think helps us understand why God would put this command into place. One of the things we try to do each time we come to a command is understand what is God getting at in restricting, putting boundaries around the things that he's putting boundaries around in the Ten Commandments. Because often, God tells us, not so much in the Ten Commandments, which are just a list of principles, but in the way those commandments get applied and the way they get unpacked later on in the Bible's sweeping story and its, and its many teachings. So I don't have time to unpack this this morning, but I want to put something out there on your radar and recommend a couple other resources for further reading if you're interested offline. There is a biblical context for this view of sex and marriage that explains why it stands out from our culture in the ways that It does. There's a biblical view of what sex is for. That comes out of the sweeping span of what the Bible covers that explains the specific ways in which the Bible's view of sex is different from its culture and from our culture. So what we've said about this context, this cultural context is that is that the Bible's view of sex built into this command is that it's a bigger deal than you may think and not as big a deal as you may think. The Bible's context, what it says about what sex is for, The ultimate purpose of it is both what makes sex so precious and worthy of careful boundaries and what makes sex unnecessary for a holy and happy and fully human life. Let me me recommend you a couple passages that feed into what I'm going to say here and then invite you to come talk to me after the service if you want more details. I'm just going to scratch the surface here. There's a couple passages in the New Testament that offer explanation. For things that are built into this command and the place of sex in marriage. So I want to re- recommend Paul's work in First Corinthians chapter 6. There's an extended passage in First Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul talks about what sex does. There it's the context where he's saying don't have sex outside of your marriage similar to this. But he explains a little bit more about what makes it so dangerous to do so. That's a helpful context. I'm going to speak some from that. And then Paul, what Paul says about marriage in general in Ephesians chapter 5, the purpose of marriage, which sex ultimately serves, is crucial for how we understand what it's meant to do. So take a look at those passages offline. Come talk to me if you have more, uh, more questions about it. I want to just speak for a moment, drawing from these texts, about the Bible's view of what sex is for, that I think helps us understand why this command is given to us sex is in in the view of the bible sex is is a sort of power tool that's designed for a very specific purpose yes procreation is part of that purpose it's one of the reasons the main reasons that sex should be handled with care is because children can come from it and children matter but but it's more than that the purpose of sex in the bible is much more than just to produce children Sex, according to the Bible, is meant to fuse two people together, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. This is especially clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If, if the, purpose, the, the, the introduction of marriage in the Bible comes in Genesis, and there it's described as a becoming of one flesh, a fusing of two people into a new identity, to something different than what they were on their own. And sex is designed to make this union happen. It's about communication and self-giving. It's how Sex is how one spouse communicates to another spouse. I'm yours completely. All of me is for you. And in a mysterious way that, that goes beyond words, but I, I, but I deeply believe fits experience, sex has a life-altering kind of power to it. The idea that you can have sex with no strings attached... That you can stay independent while saying to someone else with your body, I'm yours, is a myth. In fact, it's a direct contradiction to what the whole thing, the whole act, was designed to do. makes no more sense than saying, I want to climb up that snow-covered mountain there, so I'm going to strap on some snow skis. You're using something meant to do the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. Independence is is the opposite of what sex was meant for the idea of no strings attached sexuality is is a myth that won't work sex is for unity in marriage unity in marriage paul tells us is for unity in the gospel so sex is serving this institution marriage which itself is serving a larger broader purpose within what god is doing to redeem the world Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about marriage. There he's not talking specifically about sexuality. He does that more in 1 Corinthians 6. In Ephesians 5, he's talking about what marriage is for. And he says it's this great mystery that the one flesh union of a husband and a wife is meant to picture the whole purpose of it. The reason it was created is so that we could get a little bit of a visual aid of the union and intimacy between Jesus and his church. The gospel tells us that God in Christ has come to us because we had been separated from him by our sin that the reason he's bridged that gap by becoming human, by living and dying and rising again for us, is so that we can know an intimacy with him that has no bounds and won't ever end. The whole purpose of marriage is to point to that union. And there's a lot there, obviously, that we're not going to talk about now. Paul even strains his ability with words to get there and doesn't get all the way. He calls, he just sort of throws up his hands and calls it a great mystery. But it's enough, I think, to say that the command we're talking about this morning has a bigger gospel impact and you may have realized one of the reasons sex is so precious and powerful one of the reasons it's not to be trifled with one of the reasons the boundaries are in place is that it serves something much bigger than an individual act of pleasure it serves the unity of marriage and the unity of marriage serves the unity of Christ and his church So sex has a kind of cosmic significance to it. All that said, this higher purpose for sexuality, which serves marriage, which serves our connection to the promise that Jesus offers intimacy to us, that bigger context is precisely why any one of us can live full, happy, fruitful lives without sexuality was just a means to an end to begin with. Jesus is so, was so committed to his own sexual faithfulness because he was more committed to the gospel intimacy Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 than he was to sex itself. Jesus was the most fully human person who'd ever lived and he lived and died without ever having sex. That's because he was more committed again to the gospel unity promise to us between Jesus and his people than he was to the sign of that unity that he tried to protect through giving us commands against immorality. He was more committed to the feast than to its appetizer. He could do without that one. More committed to seeing the movie, if you will, than to watching the trailer. He could do without that because he was committed to the thing itself. There's never been a more perfect and complete human life in Jesus' life and Jesus died a virgin. You can too. And why am I spending so much time here on this background? Here's why, friends. We're going to move into into some application now, but I want you to understand why I think all this work is so important. Obedience always begins in the heart. Whether you're married this morning or single, you're going to be tempted to adultery when you believe that you'd be happier With or maybe can't be happy without sex beyond the covenant of marriage. That's where you'll be tempted. And you need to know that that's a lie. There is an intimacy available to you of which the best sex is just the faintest foreshadowing. It's available to you now. And nothing else has to change in your life to enjoy it. So knowing that, armed with this grace... That God in Christ is giving us the intimacy we were made to crave. And with that gift calling on us to protect this image he's given us of that intimacy. Knowing that context for our command. How can we put this command into practice? That's where I want to spend the rest of the time this morning. I'm going to throw a lot of practical examples at you. More than I normally do. I'm not want to do this Often but I'm going I'm to do, do a lot. So the note takers among you, this is the day for you. You're going to like this, uh, the command in practice. I want to give you, I'm going to break down some practical advice on how to embrace this command not to commit adultery into three sections. The first of these three, I believe is the most direct way to apply this command. And I'm going to break it down further into three more sections. So get those bullet points ready. We're going to get into it. Here's the first thing. How can we put this command into practice? Knowing what this command is for, why it's important, how can we put this command into practice? Here's the first thing. I'm going to just take this straight from Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee immorality. That's Paul's language. Flee immorality. Whether you're single or married this morning, you need to intentionally and even radically organize your life to avoid adultery. How can you do it? Starts, first of all, with guarding your heart. I don't mean in a Valentine's Day heart sense. I don't mean guard just that part of you that could have your heart broken through a broken relationship. That's not really what I mean. I I mean the heart as command center for your life. The heart as the seat of your desires. The heart as how you're oriented towards everything you experience. You've got to guard your heart. What does it look like to... Guard your heart from adultery. I think it begins with being really clear and careful in asking of your own life, what do you want in your relationship with somebody else? I think you've got to be really sensitive to your desire for inappropriate intimacy outside of your marriage or with someone who's married to another. For you, that may not be sexual at all. At least it may not begin that way. It could be a desire to be noticed, it could be a desire to be impressive, a desire to be an insider to some sort of special shared knowledge that makes you, that draws you together. It could just be a desire to be desired in return. It can start in all sorts of places. I've said above that, that sex was never meant for a kind of vacuum where it's just the act itself. That's not what it was for. It's always meant to fuse people together in a deeper intimacy that touches everything. So that means that that, that the path towards sexual unfaithfulness often begins with other forms of intimacy. Now, I'm not saying you should live in fear. I'm not saying you should get weird around people of the opposite sex. I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends of the opposite sex if you're married or if they're married. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying be careful. Guard your heart. Yes, be careful with logistics, with the time you spend alone with somebody else, with the type of conversations you have, with how frequent those conversations are. Be careful with all that, but underneath it all, guard your heart, because that's where you're vulnerable. Here's a second area in which we flee immorality, in which we organize our lives intentionally to avoid adultery. We have to guard our minds, not just our hearts, but our minds. Jesus is so helpful on this point. Early on in his Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous Explanations of the command we're talking about this morning against adultery, Jesus takes it and expands on it to cover not just what you do with your body, but what you do with your mind. Jesus says that when you lust after someone, you've committed adultery with them already in your heart. Lust counts. So if Jesus is right, then his next application, his next suggestion to us, makes all the sense in the world. Get radical about how you guard your mind. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut off your hand. If your, if your eyes cause you to stumble, pu- pu- poke out your eyes. Put them out. He's saying, do what you gotta do to protect your mind from what will lead your heart into adultery. So, friends, we have to get serious together about fighting for minds that are Pure. From images that will feed our lusts. Let me push this a little bit further. I don't need to tell you guys what sort of problem pornography is right now. Everybody knows that. You probably don't need me to tell you about what pornography does to your brain to rewire it. You probably don't need me to tell you about the stats involved, about the money involved, about the social consequences, what porn is doing to real people who were caught up in it. Not just those who were using, but those who were producing. You don't need me to tell you that stuff because you probably already know. So I want to push a little further. I want to encourage you, in case you're vulnerable, to thinking that that you don't have a problem yet. I want to encourage you, friends, not to assume that this call to guard your mind isn't an issue if you're not married yet, for example. Sometimes... It's possible to justify looking at porn or things like that as a kind of victimless crime. And one way that, that we can convince ourselves that that's true, besides the effect that it's having on the people who are producing it, is, is if you're single to say that well, there's no one that I'm actually sinning against. If I were married, there would be a person who would be hurt by what I'm doing, and I'm not yet. So it's, it's victimless. When I'm married, I'll stop. But that's a lie. That's a lie friends it is a lie partly because of the the system that porn is part of but but beyond that what you're doing now will not be a victimless crime because if lust as jesus says is adultery in the heart and even if you're not married yet the images you're storing in your mind could be you preparing for a heart level adultery against your spouse Images that are going to feed your lust long after you're married. Friends, if you're single now, and that's that's an argument you've made to yourself to justify what you continue to do, there are married friends here who will tell you from their experience that that isn't true. It's no protection. So that means obedience to this command can begin for you, should begin for you right now. I also want to push this further in another way. Don't assume, friends, that this isn't a danger, this, this, this call to guard your mind from images that could lead you into the kind of heart adultery Jesus is warning us against, isn't a danger for you because what you're viewing isn't classified as pornography. Anything you view that causes lust can lead you to break the command we're talking about this morning from ads that you see in the news articles you're reading to magazine stands you pass on the way to pay for your groceries to people who walk by and get a second look to image-free novels that feed images in your own mind to perhaps most dangerously, sexual content in TV and movies that have a lot of other qualities that draw you in and make it easier to justify watching them. So uh, listen, let me just say this. Is on a real practical level. There is absolutely room for Christian freedom determining what's worthwhile and helpful and God-honoring in your viewing. But as you're making those decisions, be suspicious of yourself. Be suspicious of the vested interest you have in justifying sexual indulgence that's ultimately going to harm you and other people. What effect does what you're watching have on you? Always be asking that question relentlessly and with your friends. And as you answer it, friends, don't assume that the effect these things are having on you today will be the same effect that it has on you tomorrow. So, um, about a year ago, about this time last year, uh, me and some other buddies were up at this. Uh, buddies from Trinity went up to a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. We are just up there to hear a bunch of preaching. One of, the, one of the sermons really struck several of us. There's an illustration this preacher used. Warning against sin, how deceptive it can be, how it has its own life and acts upon you. It's not something you're in control of. I'll never forget. I don't think I'll ever forget the illustration that this guy used. He talked about one of those uh, when animals attack videos. You guys know those? When animals attack videos, a lot of times, at least the the little clips I've seen, it's usually some deer in somebody's backyard that just comes at them out of the woods and they fight and it's kind of played up for comedic value. Well, this one in particular, the one that this guy was talking about was a lion, actually. that's even more serious than a deer. This is one of those, it was at one of these commercials where somebody, a model, I guess, is supposed to pose with a dangerous animal that's tame. Uh, for whatever shampoo product they were peddling at the time. I don't know. Uh, Well, this model uh, goes and poses next to this lion, and the lion does what lions do. The lion attacks her. Fortunately, she's not killed, but they cut to an interview with the trainer who's lamenting that this happened, saying, oh, there was just no way to see it coming. I mean, how are we supposed to know that this lion was going to attack this woman? I mean, we have trained this lion up from a baby. I've fed this lion, groomed this lion, taught him to obey. This lion obeys me. He's, he's very obedient. And of course, what you, you, can, you guys are already on this point, what this preacher is saying. It's still a lion. It's a predator. It was born to devour. That's what it's for. And you can probably also take his point already. We can keep sins around like lions that we think we've tamed, we've taught them to sit. We can command them, stay, and they stay. We can nurture them, put fences around them, be careful with them. But this sin may be even more than others because of the way it's so pervasive for us now. Friends, this is a lion that you're playing with. It was born to devour you. And it's only a matter of time. Paul in Romans 13 says put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires don't feed that lion anymore guard your heart guard your mind let me give you one more example here guard your neighbor this is still under fleeing immorality how can we take up this command not to commit adultery i think we need to take i think we need to take seriously the community implications of this command You can guard your neighbor to help your neighbor obey this command. Martin Luther, talking about this command, says that it means that, quote, all are required both to live chastely themselves and also to help their neighbors to do the same. I think it's spot on. How can we help our neighbors avoid adultery? Well, for one thing, you can be careful how you talk about what you watch. I mean, I just talked about how consuming media is something that's an area of Christian freedom. We don't have clear teaching from the Bible about which shows should be and which shows shouldn't be watched by Christians. That said, we have lots of places in the scriptures where, for example, Paul in Romans 14 and other places is warning against Christians leading other Christians to stumble, leading them into sin by talking loosely about or practicing loosely things that will be sensitive to their brother or sister in Christ in a way that they maybe aren't for them. So I'm thinking here about the meat sacrifice to idols, which is a big deal in their culture. This is an area where your Christian freedom, giving you the freedom to watch what you watch, if talked about loosely or openly around someone perhaps who's struggling in a way that you aren't, could encourage them to watch what you've watched and be hurt by it in a different way than you have been. I think we we have to be careful about what we talk about. You can be careful about how you dress. Every time you you choose what you're going to wear, ask, who am I serving when I choose to dress as I do? What's my goal? What do I hope to achieve? Whose eyes do I want to draw in? What do I want them to think about when they see me? Underneath it all, how can I love God and how can I love my neighbor through what I wear? I think these are questions that should just be a grid through everything you purchase and then everything you decide to put on. You can love your neighbor well and help your neighbor avoid adultery through how you dress. Here's one more example. You can be careful about your own emotional intimacy. You can be careful about the effect that it may have on your neighbor. So even if you aren't being attracted to someone, there are kinds of intimacy you can share that may affect them, that may draw them in to you, even if you're not drawn to them. There can be a subtle and seemingly innocent attempt to get approval from somebody else that can drift for them into something more. So even if you don't experience it as a problem as a problem, it's it's worth being careful, paying attention. Because it isn't their problem if that happens, it's yours too. If you cause it. All, right, all of these are examples of how we can flee immorality, organize our life to avoid adultery. And I intentionally spent most of our time there because I think that's the most direct application from the way the command gets framed. But I want to end by pointing you to two positive things that I think also come straight out of the command and how we've been trying to embrace each command one by one throughout this series. One of the things we've said is that even these commands that are framed negatively, like do... Do not steal, do not bear false witness. There's always a positive corollary to them. Don't steal, but do share generously. Don't lie, but do tell the truth. Same thing goes here. And I think that in this command against adultery, we also have a command to cultivate God-honoring intimacy. So this command in practice means cultivating God-honoring intimacy. If you're married... Cultivating God, honoring intimacy, means pursuing with your spouse a comprehensive, one-flesh unity. Sex is an incredible gift to you that God has given and designed for what He's called you to in your marriage. It is utterly unique, it is beautiful, and it is powerful. But as intended, God has given you this gift to serve an all-of-life unity that is far bigger than your sex life. So, where does sex fit into this vision? It's meant to serve and express the comprehensive union God's called you to. That means, what that means is that just the fact that you're married does not give you an excuse to pursue sex on the same terms you would have pursued it apart from marriage. It's not just about your personal pleasure, it can't be about conquest or variety or whatever else. There's a skewed view of sex that can come into your marriage. You can see this view playing out when we objectify our spouses as if they're just reduced to their sexual function and not part of a larger relationship. Or when we expect our spouses to have to woo us through some sort of carefully crafted romantic schemes as if sex is some sort of diversion or break from real life. As if it's this this thing that, that takes us away from the other things that we're doing as opposed to be, being deployed in and for what all of marriage is for. There's all sorts of signs of, uh, that I could give you of what, what, what could be an unhealthy view of sex in your marriage, but I want to just give you the positive view that is your target. If sex, as God has given it, if sex at its best if it's aimed at its purpose, which is to unify you in your marriage for all the other things God has given you to do together, then your sex life, and for you, it'll be mostly desired and enjoyed because of who you get to have sex with. It won't be the quality of the sex itself that, most, that you most notice. That quality will come from the who. When I, uh, when I do premarital counseling with guys, one of the pieces of advice I get to give them when, when we come to, to this part of our talks together, I tell them your goal in your marriage is to live as if you and your wife are the only couple in the world having sex. No comparisons, no what-ifs, no standards out there somewhere to meet for what it should look like. Just you, just your relationship and the real life good work God's given you to do together through your marriage. If you're single and sex isn't an option for you under God right now, what then? Friends, I know this is something that will be easier for me to say perhaps as a married man than for you to hear. And I think that what I'm going to tell you now is something you shouldn't believe on my authority. That would be a terrible reason to believe what I'm about to tell you. What I'm going to tell you now is what God tells you with the authority of His Word. I want to remind you that the point of sexual intimacy is always a picture of the intimacy between Christ and his church. That's what it was always for. It is precious. It is good. It is not wrong to want it. But you can do without it and experience its higher purpose at the same time. Because the intimacy it was meant to picture is available to you right now through God's word, through his people, through his spirit. And what you have right now is an opportunity to learn and to recognize, to experience the all-satisfying power of this relationship with Christ in a a perhaps clarified way because of what you aren't also able to experience. And here's the last thing I want to say this morning. talked about how we can embrace this command in practice through fleeing immorality, being serious about how we build our lives to avoid adultery. We've talked about the positive corollary. We should cultivate God-honoring intimacy. I want to end here. To put this command into practice, we need to walk together in the light with Jesus. Walk together in the light with Jesus. And this is, I know that there, I know and this isn't hypothetical. I know that, that there are some of you who are feeling heaps of shame right now. Like this message has just been like a, an accumulating pile of it. <clears throat> line by line, that pile has gotten taller. Because you sinned sexually last night or even this morning. Maybe you're carrying the weight of unconfessed sin against your spouse. Maybe you have an addiction that you haven't been able to tell anybody about. And I want you to know now that according to the God's word and our experience, sin thrives in the dark. It's in the dark that it can keep you trapped inside these cycles of shame that cause you to believe you can't get better or trapped in cycles of self-justification that cause you to believe it's not as bad as it seems. Either way, what you need for those lies to keep their rootedness their grip on you is darkness because in the dark you're alone you're at the mercy of a, sin, of a sin of great power and an evil one who knows how to use that weapon but friends listen to me you do not have to stay there you can come into the light with us today First John 1 6 says if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Nothing gets better in the dark. But first John says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is true. You can confess your sin today. Today could be the day. And I'm not telling you that it won't be difficult, that that it may not send shockwaves through your life or the lives of those around you. I won't say that won't happen. That might happen. In fact, it probably will. I'm saying it's way better than living alone with your shame. There's no future there. And that in the light, what you'll find is a Savior who's not ashamed of you. Who was known for, scandalously known for his love and grace towards sexual sinners. And who bought the right to forgive you by shedding his own blood for you. And what you'll find here in the light, I can promise you, because I've seen it, is friendship. Fellowship with one another. In this room, right here, are sexual sinners who are ready to walk with you. Because they've been there. They won't be shocked by what you tell them. And they can tell you from their own experience, so was I, and he delivered me. I can promise you that that's available to you this morning. So confess, come into the light with Jesus, and know what you didn't think was possible, true freedom. I'm going to pray that God will give us the ability not just to take up this call, but to honor Him with this precious area of our lives. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing together. Father, we know that, uh, that these, these matters we've considered this morning are heavy. They are full of, of shame for many people, pain for many people, and and, and that we're touching a, something here that is that has a powerful reverberating effect through our lives. We know that, and that makes us feel our own vulnerability and weakness compared to what's in front of us. It's from that place that we turn to you, that we ask you to do work this morning by your spirit. Please, Father, bring friends in this room right now into the light who've been thinking that they can't live there. Help them to see the lies that have held them back and to embrace the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Father, don't let them believe that there aren't people here who could live with them and walk with them through it. Protect them from believing that everyone else is succeeding at a game they're losing. Help them to see that this is a community of people who trust everything to your power and know that that power comes to us through one another. I pray for all of us that we would embrace the boundaries you've put around this precious gift and that through it we would love Christ more fully than we have.